Hello, welcome everybody. Isn't it beautiful to be here? It's just like Adelaide Riders Week last week, except more hand sanitizer. Just, it's like the whole last year just didn't happen. It's, it's wonderful. Thank you for all for coming out today. My name's Claire Wright, and I am a professor of history at La Trobe University in Melbourne. It's my great pleasure to be your host for today's conversation with the extraordinary Kate Mann. She's going to be beaming into us here at the Pioneer Women's Gardens from her home in New York City. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are meeting on the stolen land of the Ghana people and that their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders, past and present, and thank them for their hospitality in allowing me to be on country here today. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Being Melbourne-based myself, Being Melbourne-based myself, I live and work on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, where the Woiwurrung word Womanjika is used as a greeting. Womanjika is generally translated in English as welcome, but I've recently learnt that it actually means welcome, what is your purpose? And I think this is a terrific way of, to frame anyone coming together, whether they be strangers or friends. And I'd like to invoke this idea today when our purpose is to engage with the profound and incredibly pertinent ideas of our guest, Kate Mann. So let me introduce her. Oh, actually, before I do that, housekeeping. Please turn your phones to silent if you haven't already. Everybody dives into their bags, I can see you doing that. If you're tweeting or Instagramming, the hashtag is hashtag ADLWW. We ask you to support all of the writers, including the ones who can't be here today to sign your books, and Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books in the book tent here. Virtual book signings haven't really become a thing yet. We're working on it. And uh, please be COVID safe and follow the messaging on the screens and in the gardens while you enjoy your visit here today and throughout this wonderful week. So now let me introduce Kate Mann. Kate is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Cornell University. As you'll see when she finally gets a chance to talk, Kate is an expat Australian having completed her undergraduate studies in philosophy and computer science at the University of Melbourne before undertaking postgraduate and postdoctoral work at MIT and at Harvard. These days, Kate's academic research is primarily in moral, feminist and social philosophy, and she regularly writes opinion pieces, essays and reviews on moral and political topics for publications such as the New York Times, the Boston Review, the Huffington Post, the Guardian, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and the Times Literary Supplement. Kate has been called the Simone de Beauvoir of the 21st century. Now, Kate's first book was called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. It was released in 2017 to wild, critical, and popular acclaim. And we're here today to discuss her new and absolutely fantastic book entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. Now, I love the jacket quote on this book. I'm going to read it to you. A powerful and moving book, 
I want to press it on every schoolgirl who thinks that feminism is uncool, any woman who thinks the most important gender battles are won, pretty much every man I know, and say, have you thought about this? And I felt exactly the same way. Kate, congratulations and a warm Adelaide welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you for that incredibly humbling introduction, for which I'm so grateful. Kate, there's so much in this compact and compulsively readable book that it's really hard to know where to begin. Clearly, it couldn't be more timely, given the events that we've watched unfold in our federal parliament house over the last two weeks. But maybe if I can ask you to start with some definitions, because as you argue, we can fight better when we are clear about what we are up against. So let's start with the concept of misogyny. Can you begin by explaining to us your use of the term misogyny and how it differs from sexism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. A way to think about it is that misogyny for me is essentially the law enforcement branch of patriarchy. So it's a system that functions as a whole to police and enforce a patriarchal order. Um, paradigmatically, although not exclusively, by visiting women and girls with things like hostility and hatred when they don't conform to patriarchal norms and expectations. Um, so. In a slogan, misogyny goes on witch hunts um, when women and girls are perceived as not towing the line, as not knowing their place, as the title for today's session indicates. Um, whereas I think of sexism as more as wearing the lab coat while misogyny is going on witch hunts. So I think of sexism as the bad science of patriarchy. It's a system of uh, beliefs and narratives overall and ideology that tries to rationalize and naturalize a patriarchal order. So it tends to say things like women and girls are just particularly well suited to feminine coded social roles like caregiving um, and that men are particularly well suited, naturally well suited, whatever that means, to things like um, male dominated authority positions. Um, so that's a basic contrast I draw between misogyny and sexism. And while I think that there are systems that go hand in hand, I think it's a useful distinction to draw to try to bring out the difference between describing the world in a sexist way versus trying to make the world conform to patriarchal values, and that's misogyny. I hope you can hear the clapping that's going on, Kate. <laughs> Um, I found your notion that misogyny is a tool of male supremacy, as you've just said, the law enforcement branch of patriarchy, really clarifying. And you've got a great line. Um, you write that, you, that you've come to think of misogyny as being, and I'm quoting here, being a bit like the shock collar worn by a dog to keep them behind one of those invisible fences that proliferate in suburbia. Now, I think maybe Australian suburbia is a bit different from American suburbia, but of course we know what you all mean. Girls and women are, are conditioned to be afraid of breaching the boundaries without necessarily having to have experienced the pain of transgression themselves. 
Can you give us any recent examples of this shock collar effect? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that um, means that misogyny is not just internalised, but it's something that we learn from as girls. Um, we learn that there are particular consequences to, uh, you know, doing things that don't um, reflect patriarchal values. So one example would be when women come forward in public and um, tell their stories and give testimony about misogynistic behaviour they've faced, about, um, you know, sexual assaults they have encountered, and when they give this powerful testimony, it's so common that women are shamed, victim-blamed, slut-shamed, and part of what I'm trying to um, to get at with this metaphor of the shock colour is that it's not just that woman who is then put on notice that her testimony isn't welcome. It's a whole generation of girls watching that testimony be received and watching it be punished. So the sense that misogyny can enforce gender norms without actually causing direct pain to people who nonetheless be afraid to stray beyond certain boundaries. Um, yeah, that's a metaphor that I hope um, helps to shock our conscience about how much it matters that um, these public events happen, women come forward and their testimony ends up being um, policed, punished and um, the consequences for them are grave and pernicious, but much more far-reaching. And one of the things that's great about your book is that it's peppered with examples that, that most of us will know just from current affairs or from popular culture that have, that have become part of our vernacular over the last 10 years. And I think that you, in the shock collar example, you talk about the Brett Kavanaugh case. Can you just quickly go over that for us um, and, and how that operated in order to send this powerful message um, beyond mm. the room in which that drama was playing out? Yeah, absolutely. So that was actually happening as I was um, conceptualising this book. Um, so this was in September of 2018 when um, Donald Trump, uh, then President Donald Trump and Oh, what a long time I've waited to say <laughs> then or former President Donald Trump. Uh, I'll just breathe a sigh of relief. Um, <laughs> so then President Donald Trump had nominated Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and his nomination um, was, uh, there was a, a brief moment of friction when um, Christine Blasey Ford, Dr. Blasey Ford came forward to say that Brett Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted her when the two were back in high school some 35 years prior. Um, and what uh, happened after there was a um, Senate committee hearings into these allegations was um, a huge number of people in the United States, mostly but not exclusively Republicans, um, united around Brett Kavanaugh, this kind of old boys club uh, which consisted of, by the way, not a few women who tried to protect um, him, to uphold his reputation, and most importantly, to try to guarantee him um, his seat on the Supreme Court as if he was entitled to it 
despite this very credible evidence that he had committed a sexual assault um, in his teenage years. And some people said that they believed Christine Blasey Ford, um, but you know he was just a boy, it didn't matter somehow. Some people said they believed her that something happened, but they didn't think it could have been him. So it was somehow now a case of mistaken identity. And some people just refused to believe her. And either way, you had this powerful message that was, was kind of heartbreaking, especially in the wake of the Me Too movement that was supposed to make a difference here. You had this heartbreaking message that a sexual assault was either unbelievable or just as importantly was believable, but just didn't matter enough to people to deny a powerful man what was perceived as his due um, in the form of one of the most authoritative moral positions in America. So he was confirmed by a slim majority um, and now sits, uh, of course, on the US Supreme Court. Kate, I wanna get back to that, um, that question of consequences later. But, but just to stick with misogyny for a minute, you write that misogyny is more about the hostility that girls and women face as opposed to the hostility men and boys feel in their hearts. Can you explain where the oppositional line is here? And, and is this why women can live in a world surrounded by so-called good men, hashtag not all mm. men, and still feel under constant threat? Yeah, I mean, certainly part of the reason. And I mean, I'm getting at a number of things in trying to affect that shift that I'm so glad you brought up for um, uh, in this definition to try to bring us into a more victim or um, target-centered way of looking at things rather than centered on a supposed perpetrator. Um, for one thing, there's often no perpetrator. So misogyny, I think, can be committed by social institutions, by bad practices that police and punish women without there necessarily being individual bad agents who can be identified as doing the wrong um, to particular women. Um, for another thing, as I've kind of hinted at already, um, unfortunately, a lot of misogynistic policing is done by women, of women, by women. And so it isn't, even when we're talking about individual agents, it isn't just men who can be purveying and perpetuating misogynistic values, it can also be, yeah, a matter of women policing other women. Um, and, you know, I'd also say it's helpful to get away from thinking so much about um, the perpetrator's mindset, because that also sets up a, a situation where, as someone who's potentially faced misogynistic hostility, you're essentially asked to, to be a mind reader and to say, well, why did he really do it? What's his deep down motivation? You know, who cares really? Um, the question is what has happened to a girl or woman because she's a girl or woman in a historically patriarchal world um, in ways that I think we should be able to identify and name and call out and change. Um, without having to do kind of deep psychology on an individual perpetrator, which is, is usually not possible, not very helpful, and kind of distracts us from um, treating the wound. Kate, that's really helpful. So, so let's get on to the idea of entitlement. Um, the book is simply and powerfully structured into 10 punchy chapters. And let me just read some of the, the chapter titles. 
on the entitlement of privileged men, on the entitlement to admiration, on the entitlement to sex, on the entitlement to consent, on the entitlement to medical care, on the entitlement to bodily control, on the entitlement to domestic labour, and so on. And, and honestly, we could spend an hour dissecting each of, of these chapters. But I think personally my favourite chapter is on the entitlement to knowledge, or what you mm -hmm. call epistemic privilege. And, and the way that male entitlement to be the smartest person in the room, whatever that room may be, whether it's a, a locker room or, um, or a, a gym or, or the cabinet in parliament, um, but that that entitlement to, to be the smartest person in the room actually works to keep women self-silencing. Um, so I'm just flagging that I really loved that. Um, there are also crucial discussions about um, abortion, incels, white supremacy, transphobia, healthcare and, and housework. But for fairly obvious reasons, I'd like to take us straight to that chapter on the entitlement to consent. Mm. So what we've seen playing out in Canberra over the past fortnight has been a kind of a real-time demonstration of the intersection of power and privilege and sexual abuse. Can I ask you how you have viewed these events from afar? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was um, horrified, of course, although I think it's important to leave room for being shocked but not surprised by Brittany Higgins' moving testimony. Um, of course, the events of the sexual assault itself, about which, for the record, I, I believe her completely. Um, but the trauma that she faced, I think, was so clearly compounded by the culture of silence into which she entered. Um, and um, being, I mean, treated so insensitively, you know, having a formal employment um, meeting in the very room where she was assaulted. Um, and, you know, add to that um, the profound initial indifference, seemingly, of Prime Minister Scott Morrison, um, which, you know, I was just so struck by his comment. And it's a comment that you hear in so many forms when you're doing this work, um, that his wife had told him to think of it how he would feel if it had happened to his daughters. Um, so first of all, it had to be a woman who kind of drew his attention to the fact that these um, events had transpired, um, you know, under his watch, um, you know, under his foreign defense minister um, in her office. And yeah, his wife had to make him feel a modicum of concern about it, followed by the fact that he couldn't just empathize with Brittany Higgins as a rape victim, as someone who deserved empathy and moral concern and support. He had to think of her as if she was his daughter, which is so outrageous and again, so incredibly banally common um, that particularly privileged and powerful men can only really um, feel what they take to be the appropriate emotions towards a sexual assault victim when they relate her to a person who would have under patriarchal law been his property and who would have been sullied by a sexual assault that would have been an assault on his human property and thus take away the value of his uh, marriageable property um, that, uh, yeah, would, would basically be um, an assault on his wealth. 
so you know there are so many layers of wrongness to that and um while it it shouldn't need saying in 2021 and i i think this to myself so often but shouldn't need saying that sexual assault victims are are people in their own right there are people who aren't somebody's mother or sister or daughter or whatever else it is um they're just people simpliciter who deserve to be the center of that conversation, the center of our moral awareness and concern going forward. Um, and yeah, I just, um, I hope that, I hope and I'm not confident that Brittany Higgins going forward will get um, not just the hearing that she deserves, but the sense of um, a moral reckoning with what happened that all sexual assault victims deserve and that so few uh, get what they're genuinely entitled to. Kate, again, I'm interested in your perspective as, as, an, as an expat Australian. Uh, there's uh, a woman here in Australia, Shana Bremer, who she's an assault survivor and the founder of End Rape on Campus Australia. And she argued this week that Australia is still enmeshed in a blokey culture and tends to be significantly behind other countries in addressing sexual assault and sexual harassment. Do you think this is true or, or as a moral philosopher, do you think this is universal? No, it's, it's tricky. I mean, I haven't lived in Australia now for, um, gosh, uh, 15 years. Um, and so I feel a little out of touch with um, you know, the, the kind of the, my, the nuances of norms that culturally tend to evolve very quickly. Um, I will say that something I've observed living in America is that there's often, um, I think, a real, um, there are areas and segments of society where I feel um, a great growing understanding of these issues, but then there's often pernicious, ugly, toxic backlash. And so I guess to kind of pass the question back to you, I'd be curious if it feels like in Australia, certainly when I, when I was growing up, I feel like there wasn't the kind of heightened awareness of these issues that things like the Me Too movement have brought to kind of greater collective consciousness. Um, but yeah, I'd be curious if in Australia there are at least pockets where that conversation is is really happening and feels in touch with um, victims' needs and, you know, the realities of how ubiquitous this is, um, while I'd also expect that those conversations would lead to a lot of toxic, ugly backlash. Well, I, I think uh, in terms of your passing back from the nods that I can see in the audience here, I can um, assume that this is one of the pockets um, here, mm. in the, at least in the Adelaide Pioneer Women's Garden, is a pocket that uh, is, is feeling a sense of outrage about what has happened yeah. and wanting to see these conversations happen at this higher level and a sense maybe that Me Too, although we've had elements of it in Australia over the last five years, that we've felt also a tiny bit immune from it, but that it's really landed now um, and that this is going yeah. to be um, the moment where there is going to be have some kind of reckoning is going to, to happen and possibly because that is in the highest office of the land, you know, and and, yeah. and, and even the metaphor of it being Parliament House. Um, so we have domestic violence going on in people's individual houses and this is our, our the people's house and, and it's happening there. 
And let me just say how grateful I am to everyone who's having those conversations, because I think they're so difficult to have. Like it's such often an entrenched part of the norms of patriarchy to not raise these topics and to not um, make too much of a fuss about, you know, things that are best swept under the rug according to kind of patriarchal norms of politeness. And so I'm just, I'm grateful, you know, to you and everyone out there who is really trying to um, bring these conversations to the forefront despite how difficult and how emotionally taxing they can be. So let's go to something you just said there, because it's really, I think, um, takes us right back uh, deep into the book. Rape is one thing, and if Brittany Higgins' uh, allegations are proven in a court of law, then her perpetrator will be a convicted rapist. But your discussion of consent and men's socialised entitlement to get sex from women is more complicated than that. Um, you write about what you call the patriarchal social scripts that leave women feeling like it would be rude or even morally wrong to deny sex to a man who is asking for it. So how do we uncode women's deeply ingrained social programming so that women and girls feel entitled to say no? Yeah, I um, I mean, I think that's an immensely difficult question, but I think a beginning um, of the answer, I hope, is in highlighting this moral concept of entitlement. I think it actually does make a difference to teach young girls, you know, as well as boys and non-binary kids as well, um, anyone at any time really is entitled to say no to sex without a sense of resentment or consternation or even social awkwardness. Um, so, you know, this was a chapter that I was, I, I thought a lot about the material when I was reading um, the story Cat Person that went viral in the New Yorker at the, um, the end of 2017, I think it was, right at the kind of the Me Too moment, height of the Me Too moment in the States. And something that it, it clearly articulated and that was a sort of under, um, an underexplored truth was the way that these patriarchal social scripts can kind of dictate um, the way a certain course of events is meant to go such that a woman would feel guilty or ashamed or just as you put it, Claire, rude for um, walking out on someone who otherwise felt entitled to sex. And, you know, often the entitled party is a man, especially um, relatively privileged men. And, you know, I was, you know, thinking when I was um, writing this chapter, like, does this really happen? Because that was, of course, a fictional case. But then uh, one of the cases that uh, broke and became major news here was the Aziz Ansari case, where he had essentially pressured a date into sex using not coercive measures, he didn't exactly, you know, um, uh, make it explicit, uh, you know, he certainly didn't sexually assault her as far as I read the situation. He just lent on that social script that said it would be very strange for a young woman to go out with an older kind of, um, in his case, quite powerful celebrity man and not comply with his wishes for what would happen after dinner. And, you know, the, um, 
the, the pain that she subsequently felt and the way that she felt trapped, not so much by, again, explicit coercion, by the, but by the much subtler and in some ways more pernicious ways in which social scripts catch us in binds all the time. Um, you know, I, I think it's helpful to just have more education around this issue and think about, you know, I think about participants in the Milgram experiments who, um, you know, in these experiments in the 60s were led uh, under the influence of a powerful Yale scientist to administer shocks to people who were um, confederates of the experimenter but appeared to be in horrible pain. And it's not that these people were sadists. It's not that they were indifferent. They were very distressed by what they were doing. But it seems like people who feel like the social script dictates just keep going, administer the shocks. A huge percentage of people will just keep going no matter how morally bad they feel. And I think similarly recognizing the power of social scripts that, you know, unfortunately, um, a large, uh, you know, percentage of um, of cases of unwanted sex do involve this feeling of obligation. My hope is that by equipping people with concepts like the entitlement to say no and to um, not just not to be raped, but not to have sex that is unwanted, um, I hope that we might lessen something that is surely an ethically bad phenomenon, um, even if it doesn't attach neatly to concepts like blame and responsibility. Yeah, it's interesting as an historian, Kate, because I know that, that the first wave feminist movement, the, the, the suffrage movement, one of the things they were fighting for alongside um, of the right to vote was the right to say no to sex. So, you know, mm. at that point, conjugal rights were still within law, um, what we now <laughs> would call marital rape. Um, and so laws have to change, and in some ways they change in advance of social scripts. But I like your concept of social scripts because it, it implies that change is possible. You can change the script. You can change the ending of the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine if it were just different if people had more of a sense that um, these things didn't have to go a certain way and that there was nothing particularly embarrassing or humiliating or awkward about a variety of um, deviations from what's currently the script. And most importantly, that there's no moral weight attached to what people want or don't want on a particular occasion. I, I just think um, it's, it's all relatively simple concepts. Like when you lay it out, it sounds sort of obvious. Well, of course, people don't have to have sex they don't want. And yet it's so easy for this like ingrained sense of who's owed what and when to distort what people would otherwise do and feel free to do. And where this fits in with women's liberation, I think, is the idea that possibly women can start to realign their own sexual lives with their own desire rather than with male desire. Have we still got you with us? You're frozen on my screen. Kate, come back. No. Have we got tech support here? Have we... I want to... Sorry, Claire, check. I'm just a little oh, on my we... end. I think... Um, okay, can you hear us? The internet in New York is not 
happening now. Um, can you hear us, Kate? Can I'm you hear me? Can you hear me? Kate, you're frozen on the screen, but I've just heard a bit of your voice. I'm wondering whether you can hear me. I'm assuming not from radio silence. No, and I'm getting bad faces from the tech people over behind the desk. If their faces was an, uh, were, was an emoji at the moment, it would look something like Um, scream emoji. Oh, now we've lost Kate altogether. I don't know. You want me to sing a song? That wouldn't be a good idea. Read from the book. All right. I've gotten the, the please read from the book. So as you can see, I have a lot of sticky notes. So um, let me go to... Um, okay. So... Maybe when Kate comes back, I will ask her this very important question um, about why it's the, the, the uh, all right, I'm just going to do this here. Okay. So let's go to this one. So one of the things about Kate's book that I really loved was that she's very um, aware of the intersection of these issues of privilege and power and the abuse of it and how they intersect with race and class and that the way in which white women experience male entitlement might be different from the way that... Um, a black or a working class woman does. And, and this is from um, the chapter on entitlement to bodily control. Um, that many women, especially white women, have internalised this moral code and would now consider themselves bad women for having an abortion is not difficult to explain. Sorry, this is a chapter on abortion. Um, and, it, and it flows on from consent because it's about having sovereignty over your own body. Yeah, so it's about making choices about what you want to do with your body rather than conforming to the social scripts that tell you what you should be doing with your body. For those women who have much to gain by abiding by the norms of good womanhood vis-a-vis -vis the values of our white supremacist patriarchy, taking such a position is likely to be especially tempting. Witness the prominence of privileged white women, in particular Kay Ivey, Janet Porter, Georgie Borman and Phyllis Shafley, which many of you will have seen um, in that terrific series with Kate Blanchett, who played Phyllis Shafley in Mrs. America. In this story... Oh, hi! Kate! Can you... Have you, have you got us? No, we still haven't got you? We can see you again now. So that's good, that's encouraged. Oh, hi, can you hear us? All right, I'm ready for COVID to go away so that we don't have to do this anymore. Can you hear us, Kate? Clicking on buttons. All right, Kate, shout when you can hear us. I'm gonna keep reading for I, you. Oh, I'm hi. back, sorry. All right. Sorry about that. The, pa the patriarchal uh, gods <laughs> must have been frowning. Oh, no. Sorry about that, everyone. Okay. So, so um, uh, while we were briefly adjourned, the audience had a great idea, which was for me to read from your book. 
So um, I started on uh, the bit about entitlement to bodily control um, and about mm. uh, and about um, abortion. And the the the, the bit that I um, wanted to to engage in um, was the way in which you look at. Um, race and class as intersecting with male privilege in order to um, particularly oppress certain women. Um, so can I? Can we go to that point about what you've called in, in this bit white supremacist patriarchy? Why is it important to distinguish between um, patriarchy, which women and girls might all feel mm -hmm. uh, the effects of and which hurts them, and white supremacist patriarchy? Yeah, so uh, thank you so much for drawing attention to that part of the book because I do think um, when it comes to reproductive rights, it's, uh, it's, it's always important to approach these issues intersectionally, but it's particularly crucial here um, to put it, you know, crudely but simply at the outset, white supremacist patriarchy has an interest in white women having white men's babies. And it tends to be interested not at all in protecting the reproductive health and as well as rights of black and brown and indigenous women. Um, so for example, in the United States, we have this shocking situation where black women are currently um, three to four times more likely to die um, during pregnancy or childbirth or immediately after childbirth than their white female counterparts. Um, and so this kind of situation where um, white women's bodies are heavily policed to ensure that they uh, carry what are presumptively and turn out to be usually actually uh, the next white generation because one thing to recognize about white women in the US is that uh, they're the group that is the most homogenous in their mating choices. So white women are, 90% uh, of white women who are in uh, heterosexual marriages are partnered with white men, which is, you know, really, it's the most um, homogenous uh, group in terms of um, uh, interracial marriage or lack thereof. And so the upshot turns out to be that um, while um, there is an enormous amount of policing of uh, black women's bodies, there's also a much greater negligence when it comes to ensuring their um, reproductive choices, uh, when it comes to ensuring their ongoing fertility, and when it comes to simply protecting their lives within the healthcare system. Um, so I think these structures really need to be faced um, because they have, as I document in that chapter, um, deathly consequences for, um, especially I focus on black women and their, and their children. Kate, you touched on this earlier, and I just invoke the name of Phyllis Shafley in, in reading uh, that, the section from your book that, that I, I did. There's been a lot of discussion over the past two weeks about the role of female politicians and their senior mm -hmm. staffers at the centre of the Brittany Higgins case, Linda Reynolds, yeah, Michaelia absolutely. Cash, Fiona Brown. Let, let's drill down a little bit deeper there. How do you understand the part that other women play in the systems and processes by which male entitlement hurt, hurts women? Uh, I guess you'd say as the agents of, of patriarchy. Yeah, no, I, 
Have they internalised misogyny, um, or does power I, I think that's corrupt? A really... Absolutely, regardless of gender. Yeah, right. I mean, there, there is a bit of that, um, but I think more than anything, um, and this is especially true of powerful white women, um, and, you know, in some ways this is motivating my um, desire to write these books because, you know, as a white woman myself, albeit a, a Jewish white woman, um, it's very obvious to me that the structures encourage white women to cozy up to patriarchy, to internalise misogyny, to... Um, yeah, to police other women as well as uh, younger women and girls in order to play nice and be perceived as a good woman, as kind of deferential vis-a-vis -vis patriarchal figures. Um, and, you know, this is um, something which I think misogyny in its very structure encourages. Like one way of looking at it is that sexism separates out men from women and holds that they have these radically different abilities and interests contrary to what is in fact the best scientific evidence that suggests not so disparate and that disparate uh, those disparate qualities are usually attributable to socialization and different social norms and so on um, as far as we know which uh, you know we can't yet know fully because of course um, we have no control group for men and women raised in a non-patriarchal society. But whereas sexism does that, misogyny differentiates between good and bad women. And so it's just so tempting, especially as a white woman who's kind of already a bit too close perhaps to um, certain, you know, misogynistic uh, power figures like a Donald Trump or a Scott Morrison. It's, it's just tempting um, the incentive structures are all there for white women to cozy up to those figures in order to retain what power men will allow you, essentially. And that might be quite a bit of power because I don't, I'm not someone who thinks women aren't allowed to have power under patriarchy. It's just that we, our power has to be in service of patriarchal structures and interests. So Phyllis, Phyllis Schlafly is a classic example of someone who actually was granted quite a bit of power and freedom and, um, you know, had a lot of influence and gravitas all by using it in service of denying other women um, that kind of power influence and um, as well as power and influence that would have tended in a more egalitarian direction. Kate. You have uh, the, the uh, distinct um, credit to your name of having become synonymous with an idea that has entered into the vernacular. Just as Rebecca Solnit has become synonymous with the idea of mansplaining, you introduced the term hympathy into the feminist vernacular in Down Girl. <laughs> um, it's like historians all want to have coined something like the tyranny of distance, like <laughs> Geoffrey Blaney, I'm still working on it. Um, but there, there you defined empathy as the excessive sympathy shown towards male perpetrators of sexual violence. So I want to ask you, do the various strands of male entitlement that you explore in this book work together to create empathy? So that does, does, does the entitlement to care, the entitlement to admiration and to power kind of coalesce into this general social and emotional protection racket? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, one way of thinking about these strands of entitlement and the way that they work together is partly by presenting a certain moral vision of the world as having kind of central actors who are centrally owed our sympathy and concern and um, our allegiance, no matter what they do. And so, um, yeah, empathy for me is kind of in some ways the uh, the mirror image of misogyny. So whereas misogyny punishes and polices women, um, you'd expect on the flip side for men to be sort of exonerated or forgiven or rewarded for misogynistic behavior, unfortunately. Um, and so I think that a lot of these different strands of what men are entitled to come together in showing them sympathy and forgiveness and um, yeah, huge amounts of compassion when they do misogynistic things, um, concern that would be better redirected to the victims of those actions. So that comes back to uh, the issue you touched on earlier, which is that of accountability. Um, mm -hmm. When I was discussing sexual assault in the wake of the Brittany Higgins case with my 22-year-old son, he reckoned that the main problem is that Men know what they're doing is wrong, but they also know they can get away with it. Um, he likened it to racking a can of baked beans from um, the self-checkout <laughs> at Coles. You know, <laughs> you, you know you're unlikely to get caught, and the reason that uh, that you are doing isn't that bad anyway. You know, like pretty much everybody else does it, so why shouldn't you rack a can mm -hmm. of baked beans or take it as far as you can with a girl? So what's the relationship between male entitlement mm -hmm. and accountability and how do we change that social script? Is that on us as individuals, like don't rack the can of, in, of baked beans, or uh, is that a systemic problem that has to be sorted out institutionally and from the highest level? Yeah, I mean, it's very tricky because, I mean, one thing worth hanging on to, I mean, not to, you know, sort of play into the hashtag not all men uh, trope, but um, it is only a very small percentage of men who are committing the vast majority of sexual assaults. Um, we know that a lot of these people are serial offenders and repeat offenders at the very least, and a lot of them start, um, regrettably start, quite young. And so I'm a little bit uh, wary of the model that suggests that this is um, just kind of, um, you know, a completely... Uh, ordinary man who has, um, you know, who, who just kind of pushes things too far because of a lack of both education and accountability. Um, I think, you know, these are, um, as best I can tell, and I'm by no means an expert on how exactly to think about the psychology of this, these are crimes born of real aggression. I think it is true that often the perpetrators know exactly what they're doing and education plays a pretty limited role in curbing that. Um, but I think the phenomenon of both male entitlement to an aggression towards women um, sexually kind of demands to be interrogated um, as something that um, we both could do a much better job, um, you know, educating younger people in such a way as to guard against, um, but, but also should be understood as um, a very serious form of social aggression that, um, yeah, as best we can tell, we have a, a small percentage of people doing an awful lot of social damage. Mm. 
Kate, we're getting towards question time um, and hopefully this is going to work. If you have a question for Kate, please come and see Alira in at the, she's waving to you, at the microphone in the uh, middle of the row there. Um, wander up and then you will be able to ask your questions. Okay, here we've got one. And Kate, I hope you can hear this. Um, let me know if you can't. Hi, Kate. Thank you. That's fantastic. Great. Um, I do work in research and education programs in schools, and what strikes me and what frightens me is that, on the one hand, the young women say, we know what sexism looks like and feels like, but they're nervous to stand up to it. So they get it, but they don't know what to do about it. But what happens, I see, is a really easy slippage and a kind of pernicious entanglement, I think, with neoliberalism. So their fallback mm. position is to say, you know, those kind of really popular neoliberal feminist discourses of we've got the power now, do what you want with it, girl power. And there's this really easy slippage to that, like how you stand up is to live your life, love yourself, do what you want, rather than a really kind of embedded structural activist engagement. So I'm wondering if you've... Do you have any insights or wisdom of how to disentangle this thing between <laughs> neoliberalism and a fear of kind of a feminist labelling? And activism. Yeah, no, not an easy question, a, but but it's such a good one. I mean, it's so important. You know, I think I'm thinking particularly in the pandemic, that's kind of brought to light the incredible emptiness and hollowness of, of kind of boss girl feminism, um, as opposed to a kind of more far-reaching and um, you know structural feminist critique of a huge series of um, uh, domains in society where we need this kind of um, systematic critique and dismantling. Um, you know, I don't have the antidote exactly because, you know, I think in some ways the, the problem is as broad as neoliberalism and rich large. Um, I mean, I would say that I've been thinking more and more about the work of Sylvia Federici, for example, um, and her socialist feminism and the idea of not just, um, you know, sort of arming women for a boss girl workplace, but thinking about what happens at home as a crucial site and a long-held feminist site uh, for intervention and um, huge structural alteration. My hope is that in the pandemic, movements like the, you know, the 70s movement of wages for housework, for example, um, I'm seeing a more interest in that, more revival of that understanding that um, our interest as feminists in various domains cannot be narrow. Um, it has to be large and the way that we address these problems has to be structural. Um, it's not enough to just, you know, boost women or, or you know, um, girl power or whatever, uh, you know, hollow phrase is um, popular uh, at the moment. Um, you know, we need a, a thorough dismantling of patriarchal as well as white supremacist social structures to even make inroads. Um, so really, this is just an expression of uh, I share the I share the question and the worry. Thank you. We've got another question for you from the audience, Kate. Um, I just want to ask about uh, in regards to sexual assault. You're saying that it's a very limited number of men that do this. But I guess the question I've got is, how do we as bystanders or 
in our capacity of watching what's going on with Brittany Higgins and so forth, how do we change that script so that it's supporting her and other sexual assault survivors? Yeah, I, I love that question because the evidence that um, as far as you know, I've been able to, to glean from sex researchers and educators has suggested that educating that small percentage of men not to rape is not very effective. Certainly educating women to avoid rape is both ineffective and pernicious. It you know, um, increases victim blaming. The one thing that does work is educating bystanders to intervene. You know, imagine if that night, if Brittany Higgins had been, you know, it sounds like uh, she was plied with drinks by her rapist. She wanted to get home in a taxi. If you look at the details, he kind of finagled his way um, to being the one to escort her home and then took her back to Parliament House. Imagine if that story had gone completely differently and at, you know, the, the bar, her co-workers had seen that she got home safely um, with, you know, a, a number of people and not just one man who it now turns out by the sound of it has committed several rapes. Um, it, you know, imagine if that whole social scene had gone completely differently. So, you know, both training people and equipping them to do that very awkward thing that I've had to do many times as a professor, just walking around campus and just saying, um, you know, are you all right? You know, do you need a ride home? Do you need an Uber? Um, here is my phone. Um, you know, it, it always, you know, hurts and sucks to have to do this, but making it clear that you're prepared to intervene when, you know, I, I've seen so many couples that just, it looks like, you know, the first time I encountered this um, as a professor, you know, he was dangling her keys, kind of mocking her um, and making it clear that he felt entitled to enter her dorm room, you know, and trying to both equip others and ourselves to be the person who is, is always prepared to be the active bystander and to ensure that people are as safe as it's possible to be um, and not just trust that, of course, he's a nice guy because who knows, really? Um, that, I think, is crucial work, which I really thank you for doing. Kate, we've got a few more minutes left to us and, and no more questions for the audience. So um, I've got a couple more to you. And, and one, of, one of them goes to that issue of, uh, of where to go, what, what to do next. And one of the reasons I started the discussion today with that idea of coming to each occasion with a definite purpose is that the book mm, itself is so that. purposeful. Um, you know, it's by no means some kind of waffly, philosophical, academic treatise, um, only destined to be discussed in, in the Agora. I mean, ultimately, you're an activist, and you have mm -hmm. your mind squarely set on outcomes. Um, you, you have this great phrase in your book, which is lucid anger. You say you want your daughter to feel lucid anger. Such a great phrase. So I want you to tell us how, how we can get this hands it, this what the, the blurb says on the book you know she says to thrust this book into the hands of every man she knows and says how do you think about it how do we stop preaching to the choir and start converting the priests 
How do how does everybody leave here having gone from this polite conversation in the gardens to being activists in their in their own homes, in their own workplaces, and actually starting to to, to make a difference, to, to find that, that energy. How do you to find fight. the energy to fight? How do you find the energy to fight and counteract despair? Yeah, I know it's a really uh, tough question because I don't always, you know, I do feel a lot of despair a lot of the time. And I think um, finding that energy to fight is something that we do collectively. Um, for any one individual, it's going to be intermittent and recognizing like the gravity of the problems that we're all grappling with collectively, like, you know, we'll have to take breaks and have some of us um, take the lead um, when energy flags. Um, but, you know, more than anything, I wrote the book, you know, hoping it could be read by high school students and, you know, students without any background in philosophy whatsoever. I really want it to be as accessible as possible um, because, you know, I, I don't particularly believe in, I wish I did, but I'm not particularly um, optimistic about uh, speaking to and arguing with perpetrators, but I am very optimistic about arming girls and women to fight this fight and to have the vocabulary to, you know, call things out and to feel not guilty or ashamed for um, resisting these forces, but rather feeling that they're, in fact, even though it might feel counterintuitive and guilt-making to withdraw empathy or withhold that kind of support from a perpetrator, that it is, in fact, helping to make the world better for people who are often victimised, namely girls and women, as well as non-binary people. Um, so that's my hope, that this is um, an effort that can help crystallise things which, um, you know, I have needed help from so many feminist writers who I draw on so extensively in all of my work. I've needed so many other people's, especially women's help, to crystallise what little I can say. Um, and I hope to be like, you know, just a very small part of that effort that I do see as so collective to try to name some of these problems and equip people who might otherwise not quite be able to say what's wrong or not quite feel empowered to resist forms of oppression um, with the capacity to do that. Well, Kate, as the mother of a 16-year-old daughter, I can um, say with some confidence that the work that you and other feminist writers working in this space are doing is making a huge difference. They, that generation of young of girls is at the end of their collective empathy and, uh, and they're a force to be reckoned with. And I want to thank you for providing us with the clear-sighted tools and the lucid anger to be able to continue and take this fight forward. It is a wonderful book. You have succeeded in your aim of making it accessible to wide audiences. I'd like to encourage you all here to grab a copy of it, grab several so that you can thrust them into many people's hands <laughs> after you leave here today. And please thank Kate Mann for the work she does and for joining us here today. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for a wonderful conversation, for which I'm so grateful. Thank you, everyone, for coming.